I want to bring you into a conversation that started uh, months ago. Uh, I turned 45 in June, and a couple months before that, I started a conversation with the Lord that kind of surrounded what, or, or was oriented around this one thought. And please don't judge this thought. Uh, I'm just being transparent. I don't know if it's right or wrong to talk like this, uh, but it really doesn't even matter to me because the little boy just wanted to, to say something to his daddy and best friend. And I said, Lord, by the time I die, Lord willing, many years from now, I want to have brought you more best friends than any other human in my lifetime. And it started this conversation between the two of us that's taken months and months for me to process. Well, finally this last week, I presented it to the elders, then flew to Dallas, and presented it to Tom and Todd Lane, who are gonna be stepping in as our interim COOs for the next nine months. And now I wanna bring you into it. When I said, Lord, I want us because I is we, we is me. It's not just Preston, it's pillar. When I said, Lord, I want us to bring you more best friends than anybody else during our lifetime, his response was, well, then this is the church. Pillar must be in order to pull it off. Pillar must be these seven things, Preston, if you even want a chance at pulling this off. One of the things my dad told me when I was young, shoot for the moon, and if you end up in the stars, you're still ahead of everybody else. So whether, whether we achieve this or not, doesn't matter to me, but I, I, it does. But I just want you to know, this is going to be our aim. If the Lord allows me to pastor this church for the next 25 years, my whole life is going to revolve around this one thing. We are going to bring God friends. So I want to kind of give you the seven elements, and this essentially is like a spiritual trip through Heaven's Home Depot. Jesus said, I build my church, and this is what God is saying to us, and this is the type of church that I am building pillar into so that pillar can fulfill the purpose I created it to fulfill. Seven things. Here's the first one. It won't surprise you based on the one thing that I just told you. Number one, we must be a church determined to bring God more friends. If you've got a Bible, I want you to flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Notice that all of these are going to start off with the words we must, not we are. And here's why. Because I think when we say we are a church that brings God friends, it would be easy just to coast and go, well, that's just who we are. I want to leave it in the, in the sense of a mandate, a constant mandate, because then you're always moving in that direction. So it's not just something I am, it's something I must be. Big difference. We must be a church that brings God more friends. Second Corinthians 5, starting in verse 18, says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us, believers, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Watch verse 20. Now then, we, believers, 
are ambassadors for Christ. Watch this next line. As though God were pleading through us. How would you evangelize if you always had the thought? It was as though the God of the universe were pleading through you his case to bring that person into relationship with him. Here's the message. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What is the message of reconciliation? Is it just about souls? It can't be, in my opinion. And here's kind of a three-pronged approach that we're going to take as a church for at least the next 25 years. Here is, in my opinion, the message of reconciliation. If you're lost, turn to God. If you left, come back to God. And if you're loved, draw nearer to God. Notice, number one is for the lost. Number two is for those who walked with him, but walked away from him. And number three is for everybody. Everybody is loved, believer and unbeliever. This is part of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't just send Jesus to die to get us out of hell. He sent his son to die so that we could be best friends forever. Draw near to me, God says, and I will draw near to you. That's a message for all of us. Pillar must be a church determined to bring God more friends. Second, we must be a presence church. Exodus 33, one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture, Moses says to God, God, it's your presence among us which sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. Three things this entails. Number one, his presence is our number one asset. This must be our perspective. God's presence must be our number one asset as a church. A house of God without the presence of God It's just a warehouse filled with a bunch of humans. I don't know if you realize this. This room right here is just a warehouse. It really is. In fact, one of our elders is in this service. And and when when I was interviewing him in the process, uh, I said, you guys live nearly an hour away from here. And you drive by some really incredible churches with much better buildings than us. Help me understand why you come all the way up to North Scottsdale from the deep east part of the valley. I'll never forget what he said. Preston, we do, we do pass by a lot of beautiful buildings just to come to a warehouse. At first I was like, he didn't mean it like that. He said, but Preston, every time we come to this warehouse, God is in the house. And that's why we drive two hours round trip every weekend. If God isn't in the house, all this is, is a stupid warehouse. His presence must be our number one asset. Not our money, not our people, not our staff, not our buildings. The number one asset in the house of God must always be the presence of God. This is why I told you two weeks ago, when I go into the presence of the Lord, I try not to ever take it lightly because my ability 
to be alone with the God of the universe cost the son his life. So the presence of God must never be downplayed. When he walks into the room, we must always act like we did the very first time we experienced it. I don't ever want him to walk into this place and me be like, hey, what's going on? How you doing? Now, when he walks in, I want to be undone every time. His presence must be our number one asset. Second, his presence leads us. Here's what that practically means. I'm not in control of this church. The elders aren't in control of this church. We're charged to govern and I'm charged to lead, but we're not in control. I'm not in control. The pillar is, capital P, he is. It's his house. He's the one in control. We are merely under his authority, tasked with carrying out his desires. He will not be welcomed into a place that man thinks he can control. The minute I start thinking I run this whole thing is the minute God walks out of this room. Preston, why are you sharing this with us? Because this really isn't a sermon, right? I think about two to three times a year, it seems like the Lord has me do things like this. And one of the biggest reasons is accountability. Hey, Preston, you said this, and I haven't seen us do anything about that. Accountability is essential. Otherwise, we just turn this into a lowercase k kingdom with a king trying to build his own castle. The point of pillar is to give God whatever he asks for. His presence is what leads us. Then here's the third part of it. Our worship is essential to his presence. Worship is always going to be an essential part of what pillar does as a church. And as we get older as a church, I believe the anointing God gives us access to for worship in the area of worship is only going to increase. Why? Because worship is the soundtrack for holy moments with the God of the universe. Let me show it to you. Psalm 22, verse three, but you are holy God, enthroned or seated upon the praises of Israel, your people. Here's how I need you to see worship for the rest of your life, especially when you're alone with the Lord leading yourself in worship. Every time you step into worship, the one who is alone, worthy of worship. Every time you worship, you're pulling up a seat at your table for the God of the universe to sit upon. He loves it when we worship. Worship isn't just singing, it's something we do at all times and all things. It's all unto him because he deserves it all. Here's the third thing. If we're gonna pull this off, we must be a historically generous church. And by historic, I don't mean did it yesterday. I mean in comparison to everybody else tomorrow. We must be a historically generous church. Three elements of generosity. For a church to be historically generous, the tithe must be brought. Now, I'm gonna do an entire series of, on this, on these seven things uh, to start off 2024. So we're gonna have one week for each of these, all right? So if you're going, man, Preston, I wish we could kind of linger in some of these. I, I can't, I gotta get through seven and 40 minutes, okay? So we're gonna do seven full weeks on all of these. But in order for a church to be historically generous, 
The tithe must be brought. Notice the word brought. You don't give the tithe. The tithe belongs to the Lord. So I don't, I don't give him a tithe. I return it to him. So for a church to be historically generous, the tithe must be brought. This is why we tell our members in membership class, one of our expectations of members is they bring the tithe into the storehouse. Second, if a church is going to be historically generous, offerings must be given. We bring the tithe, but we give offerings. What's an offering? Anything over and above the tithe. Then here's the third thing. If a church will be historically generous, it must be a place where sacrifices are made. You can't be godly and stingy simultaneously. Because we were made in the image of the capital G giver. And one of the ways we reflect who he is is by our sacrificial generosity. What's the why? Why must we be historically generous and why must we do these things? First, generosity shows perspective. First Timothy 6, verses 17, 18, and 19 say this, teach those who are rich in this world, that's every single one of you, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so stinking unreliable. In other words, its value is up and down every day. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. So much there. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works, and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, Preston, you will be storing up your treasure as a good foundation for the future so that you may experience true life. When I am sacrificially generous, one of the things I am saying to God is this, I'm more focused on tomorrow than I am today. And by tomorrow, I mean eternity. Listen, money is the currency of earth, not the currency of heaven. This is just a temporary season of time where we are a part of a system that relies upon money. It won't always be so. It will not be like this once Jesus returns. But for now, one of the best opportunities I and we have to show the Lord that he is Lord of our lives is to be sacrificially generous with the things he gives us. Generosity shows an eternal perspective. Here's the second thing, generosity shows faith. First Kings 17, I don't have time to read the whole thing, you should read this chapter. God says to the widow of Zarephath, this is Preston's paraphrase, I'm bringing the man of God to your house and I need you to feed him. There's only one problem. She ain't got jack squat. So Elijah shows up. He's like, hey, could I get some water? She's like, oh, water, we can do that. I'll go to the well. He says, hey, how about some bread? And she says, are you good, bro? I'm, I'm scrounging around for sticks so that I can make one last meal before I die. Isn't it interesting that God goes to the woman in Zarephath and says, I need something from you. I need your last meal. I need you to give it to me so that Elijah can be fed before the next leg of his journey. 
On paper, it sounds crazy. But then if you study 1 Kings 17, what happens? How does God respond to the sacrificial, obedient generosity of the widow of Zarephath? Heaven opens up over her. She got oil for days and days and days. Flour for days and days and days. Why? Because she had the faith to give what she thought was the last of what she'd been given. And notice, the second she opened her hands, she saw God's response. Now listen, we don't give to get anything. But having said that, you can't stop God from responding how he wants to respond to your sacrificial and obedient generosity. You can't stop him. He's looking for good stewards. And from his perspective, understand, an essential part of being a good steward is not doing this. No, Lord, you, you need to have somebody else bring Elijah a meal. I'm going to eat my last meal in peace. What would have happened if she would have held on to that last bit of flour and oil? Quite possibly could have cost her her life. But because she was walking by faith, she gave God what he asked for. And then she saw God's supernatural response. This is who we must be, a sacrificially generous church. Here's the fourth thing. We must be a feeding church. And you're seeing this become more and more of a priority this year, our first year's pillar. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, widely known as the tithing passage. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. So that's the what. But now here's the why. So there will be food in my temple. Preston, I want the tithe not to go anywhere else in the world. I want it to come to my storehouse, my house. And here's why. Because I want my house to be filled with food, spiritual food. I will open up, watch this, God's response. When the tithe comes to the storehouse, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't even have enough room to take it in. Now, I've served under the man, one of the humans God has used more than anybody else just about in our lifetime to teach this passage from a biblical perspective. And I agree with everything he said, but I wanna give you a, a slightly additional way to look at Malachi 3.10. What if God isn't just saying, here's how it's gonna work. If you bring the tithe into the storehouse, I'm gonna open up the windows of heaven and rain down blessings on you, you can't even count. What if he's not just saying that? What if he's also saying, Preston, as long as there is food in my house, I'm gonna open up the windows of heaven and shower down blessings you can't even count. The tithe wasn't about the money. The tithe was to make sure there was food. One of the biggest moves I've made in the last 11 years as the senior pastor of this church was stepping out in faith and bringing Timmy on and Brent on to help carry the load. I have two primary responsibilities as the senior pastor of this church, to lead and feed. And in the first year of our church as pillar, I've brought in two of the best I have access to to help carry the load on the feeding side. And now you're gonna see me bring in two of the best I know on the leadership side, Tom and Todd Lane, to help us. They're not gonna live here, but they're gonna help us the next nine months to get ready for what God is desiring to do through us over the next 25 years. I and we need help. 
And here's how I describe Tom and Todd. They're Bezalel and Aholiab. Google it. God had a very specific thing he wanted the temple to be. And he only entrusted two men to carry out the building of that temple. Bezalel and Aholiab. Two of the least known names in the Bible that I think are some of the most important. So, step out in faith, bring Tim into the fold. He'll preach 10 to 12 times this year. Now Brent's in the fold. And here's one of the things you gotta watch, and especially if you're a younger me. I need you to see this. Don't just, just watch it from a distance. I need you to really dig in deep and see what's happening. Do you realize that our senior pastor has brought in two teaching pastors whose sermons are getting more views than our senior pastors? It doesn't make me anything, but you must understand this is war and I don't want to lose. If I am the best preacher on this team, it only means I am the weakest leader in this house. I need help. This is war. And God has blessed our church in such a way where we can go after some big guns. And so we have, and so we are, and so we must. Why? Because we're a feeding church. I remember when Robert sent me out, couple months before he sent me here, he said, Press, if you will feed the fresh bread of heaven, the sheep will drive hours to come sit at your table and eat that bread. You must be a feeder, Preston. Remember Peter, the, the exchange between Jesus and Peter? Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Like, do you actually love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. What does Jesus say in response? Feed my sheep. Apparently, Jesus takes the feeding of his sheep incredibly seriously. He says it again, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus says, then care for my lambs. And he says it again. Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus says, then feed my sheep. I need you to understand, this isn't just a pulpit thing. That's just the first domino. We've got some amazing teachers that God has brought into this family. And we're going to empower them to deliver the message and burden God has put in their mouth, in their heart. Because we're going to feed. A big part of my job is to build an ark so big that it's not filled with animals, it's filled with bread. So that, no matter what happens on the earth, if anyone ever wants to binge the fresh bread of heaven, they can Netflix style this bad boy and go eat thousands of meals that feed their soul. We must be a feeding church. Number five, we must be a developing church. Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 and 12. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility, so the fivefold's responsibility is to equip 
God's people, to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. One of the highest calls on the church is to go and make disciples to the ends of the earth. Develop disciples. I don't have enough time to go through all this, but I wanna lay out a picture I believe God has given us. What does a healthy, developed disciple actually look like? Okay, so I'm gonna use the word healthy to kind of paint this picture for you. The H, a healthy, developing disciple is a humble learner. One of the things I've learned over the first 11 years here is people who are not learners are always gonna be miserable around me. They're gonna look at me and go, Preston, it's never enough for you. Well, that's not how I would say it. I just love him so much, I wanna grow more tomorrow than I did today. It's just one of the ways we show we love him is we don't stay where we are. That one of the ways we draw near to him is we endeavor to learn more about him and then look more like him. The E, empathetic leader. A healthy disciple is an empathetic leader. One of the things we're going to endeavor to do is to raise the emotional intelligence of our entire church. Going through COVID helped us understand the church is not the most emotionally healthy place on the planet. And if, if you are going to be used by God as a minister of reconciliation in the day in which we live, you're going to need to make sure you have some empathy up in that mug. So we're gonna raise up empathetic leaders. The A, anointed apprentices. I don't have time to really walk through this one, but I'll probably do on the leader's cut an entire episode on helping you discern where the oil of heaven is. It's one of the most important things I could ever teach you. The oil of heaven makes hard things much easier. Doesn't mean they'll be easy, it just means they'll be easier because you're divinely enabled with the oil of heaven. We must raise up anointed apprentices. L, the L of a healthy, developed disciple. They're loved lovers. This is identity. If you don't understand you are loved by God and he desires to be loved by you, then you're probably gonna be prone to getting stuck in the world of works, bringing him things he doesn't ask for just to try and get things from him he's already given you. And so we must raise up loved lovers. The T of a healthy disciple, theologically trained. Theologically trained. Doesn't mean you have to have a, a doctorate in theology. It just means you need to have an understanding of God's word in such a way that you can build your life upon it rather than your opinion. The H, a healthy disciple, must have healthy pillars. This is a burden God gave us. And we're gonna teach it until we're done. Again, we saw it in COVID. The church isn't the healthiest place. So we must, if we're gonna develop disciples, they must be disciples with healthy pillars because the easiest disciple to pick off is one with wobbly pillars. Then here's the why. A healthy disciple is a yielded vessel. They're not here for them. They're here for him. You can't be both. You gotta pick. Either your life was paid for by the blood of Jesus and you no longer belong to yourself or Jesus is Lord, but you still operate in the driver's seat. Healthy disciples are yielded vessels. 
I serve at the pleasure that there's a, a line in the White House. I serve at the pleasure of the president, which is, which is cute and all. But as the children of God, we serve at the pleasure of the creator of the universe. We must be yielded vessels. Cody doesn't run a business so that he can do whatever he wants. Cody runs a business because God put him on the earth to do whatever God asked him to do. And Cody's business plays a big role in being able to do everything God created this little boy to do before he dies. But he knows it's not about him. And listen, to the extent you don't make it about you is the extent to which he will pour the oil of heaven upon you to do what he wants to do in the earth. You gotta be a yielded vessel if you're gonna be a healthy disciple. Here's the sixth thing. If we're gonna pull this thing off, we must be a caring church. First John chapter three, verse 16 says, we know as believers, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? But I need you to see verse 16 and we're gonna take communion because of this verse. We know what real love is because Jesus laid his life down for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. There are five buckets of people I believe God's asked our church to care for for the long haul. Widows, orphans, oaks, and I would say oaks near the end more specifically. So if you're like 60 and you're like, wait, I go to the oaks. No, no, to care for oaks as they near the end. Neighbors is the fourth bucket those around us that don't even go to our church, we're to care for them. We're to show the love of Christ to them by caring for them in a no-strings-attached way. And then number five, we're meant to care for the savages all over the earth. That's my terminology, but here's what I would say. The godly men and women who are on mission, going to the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ, needing familial support. We're to be a caring church, and here's why. I just read you the verse. We know what real love is because of what Jesus did for us. And because of what Jesus did for us, here is to be our response. The only response a follower of Jesus can make to the sacrifice Jesus made is to sacrifice their life just like he did his. So I want you to take out the elements. There's still one more point. But I just want to do this now. If you didn't get the elements and you'd like to participate in communion, you don't have to be a member to participate in communion, just a believer in Jesus. If you need the elements, just put your hand up. Put it up high, we'll make sure you get them. And I'll wait for you. Not gonna lie, as I walk through these seven things, it's a little bit daunting to me. Until I remind myself that Jesus went on record and said, Preston, here's how this whole church thing works. I build my church. And the only way the gates of hell will not prevail against a church 
is if I, Jesus, am the one building the church. And Jesus showed his love for the bride by laying down his life for her. That's why his bride must be entirely devoted to laying their lives down too. Everybody got it? Okay, go ahead and take out the bread. That night, Jesus, with his disciples gathered around, took the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. I'm doing this for you. They had been doing Passover for a very, very long time. Jesus shows up and says, I want you to know, I am the bread of Passover. This is my body, which is broken for you. Every time you eat this, I want you to remember me. Now, sometimes when we take communion, we, we focus on ourselves, we focus on our sin, and I'm not saying that that's wrong. I think primarily what we must always be focused on when we take communion is Jesus. That's why he said, remember me. Pressing communion isn't about your sin. Communion is about your Savior. And this is my body, which is broken for you. And the reason I want to take communion after point number six, we must be a caring church, is so that we will all be reminded if we're truly followers of Jesus, one of the evidences is that we are laying our lives down the same way he did for us. Jesus, thank you for proving your love for us. Greater love hath no man than to lay his life down for his friends. <laughs> Jesus, you did it for friends, to bring friends to the Father. And it cost you your life. Jesus, as we endeavor to be the church you desire pillar to be, as we take this bread into our bodies, May we be reminded of the responsibility we've given, we've been given to lay our lives down for others. Just as Jesus laid his life down for us. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's take the bread. The same way that night Jesus took the cup And he said, this is my blood, which is shed for you. Every time you drink it, remember me. And so we must. But one of the other things we must remember, that the blood of Jesus affords us as followers of Jesus, is that we could never have been partners with God in bringing heaven to earth if Jesus wouldn't have shed his blood on the earth for the earth. Because of the blood of Jesus, I can therefore now boldly go into the presence of God, not just as his friend, not just as his child, but as his partner in the ministry of reconciliation. Without his blood, I don't get to be his partner. I need you to understand this. 
I know your life is awesome. And I know you, some of you feel you're the center of the universe. It's a terrible way to live, let me just say. I tried it once. You'll need Ambien to fall asleep at night because you were not meant to be the center of the universe. The one who holds up the universe with a word of his power was meant to always be the center of the universe. But that one, capital O, set things up in such a way where he would partner with man. God created Adam's place and then told him to care for it. The mere fact that you have oxygen in your lungs is a statement from the creator of the universe. There is something on the earth he desires to do through you, but the only way to pull it off is in divine partnership with the one who sent his son to die so that you, the two of you could be partners. What happens next in each of our lives must be because of our partnership with the one who sent his son and the blood made it possible. Jesus, as we take this cup, we just tell you thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for shedding your blood. It is mind-blowing to think that the God of the universe would ever want to partner with us to do anything. Jesus, help us get a revelation of what this divine partnership costs you. I must wake up every morning endeavoring to give God whatever he asks for because what he asks for cost the son his life. Jesus, thank you for shedding your blood so that we don't have to hold our head down when we go into the presence of the Father, but we can go in boldly as partners in the family business. Jesus, as we take this cup, we remember you and we say thank you. Let's take the cup. If you would, on the end, just kind of keep the place clean. If you, there are receptacles on the end of your row, I think on your left, if you just pass those down, and it'll help us keep things clean for the next service. Here's point number seven, if we're gonna pull this off, and this, this is a newer one, but not a newer one, but it's gonna seem new to most of you. If we're gonna pull this off, we must be ascending church. We must be ascending church. You're hearing me talk more about, in this season, the Isaacs and the Brents that now are stepping into a season of preparation to get them ready to step into the next season of their lives if what God has for them is to pastor a church. And so being a sending church, if you go back and study the early church, the early church was sending very early on. This is a part of what we do. And so I'm telling you this because some of you are gonna fall in love with some of the people God has teach in this pulpit. And then one day I'm gonna tell you they're leaving. But here's what you have to remember. When you're ascending church, no one ever leaves. They're always sown. When you send a son or a daughter, they don't leave your house. 
you're sowing them into a new field to take more ground for the kingdom of God. We must be ascending church. Now, we always have been, but it's going to be a lot more public now. This goes all the way back. Cody Carnes, our first worship pastor here, uh, he and Co Carrie got married, and everyone was wondering where they were going to live after they got married. And she moved to Scottsdale. She started attending the church. As people started to find out that Carrie was now attending, at that time, Gateway Scottsdale, now Pillar, uh, as you would expect, with Cody leading and now Carrie present, our attendance started going like this very quickly. And then less than a year in, one day in my time alone with the Lord, I felt the Lord say, Preston, it's time to sow Cody and send him elsewhere. Now, when I told my wife, she wanted to kill me because we love Cody. He's like a little brother. And truth be told, because he's like a little brother to me, a younger brother, I know no matter how miserable he had gotten, and he was pretty miserable, not because he hated Scottsdale. Here's what you have to remember. One of the ways you know the pillar has moved is when yesterday there was a grace and today there no longer is. And it had happened. But because he was an awesome and loyal younger brother, I could see it on his face. He was gonna tough it out for up to half a decade. And, and truth be told, if I were trying to build a castle where I was famous, I never would have taken Cody and Carrie to lunch at Greyhawk that day. But I did. Sat him down and said, with all my heart, I believe the Lord has spoken. It's time to send you. We're going to sow you by sending you. And the two of them just start weeping. Because God had already spoken to them. We've always been ascending church. But we're going to be more ascending church than we've ever been. And here's why. Because Jesus is coming again soon. And this is a pretty amazing family. So I believe God's given us two very specific, specific anointings. One, an anointing to raise up sons and daughters. But two, an anointing to adopt. You look at what's happening with Brent. Brent isn't the son that we've spent the last seven, eight years raising up the way we've spent raising up Isaac. God asks us to adopt. And so we did. And what do you do when you adopt? You treat them the same way you treat your biological children. I'm learning this right now. My heart is expanding for a four-year-old that I didn't bring into the world. Just a little FYI for any of you who, who heard me talk about, remember the cowboy boots and, Mom, I must get cowboy boots, okay? You have to see what he wore today. Just look for him in the lobby if he's out there because he's wearing his cowboy hat and cowboy boots this weekend. He's like, I have to wear my cowboy clothes to church today, Mom. Okay, no problem. Go for it, cowboy. Sweetest thing you've ever seen. But the Lord's helping me understand the call on the family of God is to adopt. Remember, as Gentiles, we ourselves were adopted into the family of God, grafted into the tree. And so we better have an anointing to adopt and send them out as though we gave birth to them. 
These are the things I believe that please the Father. Jesus was a sender. Why? Because the Father had sent him. Jesus sent the 72 because the Father had sent him. And here's what we all have to remember. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are sent ones too. Preston, what are we sent to do? Let me make it as simple as I possibly can. You are sent to give God whatever he asked for through your life.